Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Mark Milligan, in case you don't know me. Been, our family's been here at River Hills for a little over a decade, I think, now. Um, I want you to know it's been a joy in preparing this text. Uh, it's been a little bit of a burden to me, uh, concerned that I haven't uh, made proper application in this. Um, this text is rich, and I hope you can draw something out of this for yourselves. It's a, it's a treasure for us. Um, well, let's pray together for God's help. Father, grant that we be filled today with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of you. And this seems like a mighty tall order sometimes. We confess we are easily and very often too gladly led away from our life-giving God instead to seek hope in dim reflections and shadows and to seek refuge in just leaf-covered huts and to seek peace from warmongering tyrants around us. Instead, Lord, turn our hearts to you. Let us rejoice in you, be rooted and steadfast in you. Cause us to walk in your statutes. Let us entrust to you the power to meet this need for us, Lord. Amen. Well, let's turn our Bibles to Colossians 2. Last week, Daniel taught us from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, which starts by saying, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk in him which means that they, uh, they ought to live and walk in accordance with the true gospel that was given to them through Epaphras, being rooted in that and not swerving. And then in verse 8, we have Paul giving a warning to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So it's a warning followed by an explanation. And this morning... Uh, we see much of that same pattern, warning followed by explanation. Uh, we're looking at verses 16 to 23, which is largely an extension from last week. There's a lot of parallels. Verse 16 and verse 6 both start with, therefore, referring to the gospel that they heard from Epaphras, uh, rich reasons for hope. Verse 16 gives the warning, and then verse 17 you can see a bit of an explanation. Verse 18, another warning. And verse 19, some more explanation. And then more of this in verses 20 to 23. One difference, though, is that the context of the warning in verses 8 through 15 is circumcision. Whereas in verses 16 to 23, it is other regulations like food and drink and Sabbaths. So Paul's movement from circumcision over to other regulations, is a kind of progression. It's really brilliant thinking through how Paul has put together his words and his reasoning. Uh, since in the Old Covenant, circumcision was the entrance. It's the beginning, entering into the Old Covenant. And then following that, you would keep other regulations and laws. Uh, that is your way of continuing in the, in the covenant, being lifelong obedience to that covenant. And so in the Old Covenant, you begin by circumcision and you live and you keep covenant through obeying regulations, which never really worked. 
It never brought righteousness and peace with God. Well, you can compare that relationship to Colossians 2, verse 6, where he says, As you received Christ, so walk in him. In the new covenant, we enter by faith. And that is also the way to continue, to walk and obey by faith. We don't enter by trusting Christ and then obey as if our peace with Christ depends on us and our performance. Well, that's my introductory thoughts on this and the structure and the overview. At the heart of understanding today's passage, I think, is to, uh, is to understand that the Old Covenant has been given to the world through Israel as a shadow of what was to come and what was better, which is Christ. His new covenant succeeded where the Old Covenant failed, just like we sang about what a treasure we have in, in our Lord, what work he has done for us. Relying on Christ's obedience is better than relying on our obedience in maintaining peace with God. And that was Paul's point about circumcision. It's also his point uh, regarding regulations in today's passage. The main point I see in this text is don't go back to shadows in Egypt, which I'll explain shortly. And then three points we'll see. Number one, good things can be used badly. Number two, bad things can look good And number three, only Christ gives victory over our rebellion. Number one, good things can be used badly. Look at verse 16. It says, let no one pass judgment on you in these questions. And this is simply to say that uh, don't let others' judgments of you, um, don't let it stick. Don't let it disturb your faith. And I don't mean being annoyed He speaks, actually, here of those who would lead you away from a confident trust in Christ's payment for your sins, once for all, completed. These are false teachers leading you away from the faith. They aren't uh, building up the saints. They are deceiving. Now, that being said, they don't all wear black hats and black mustaches. They might be called Christians and have an appearance of wisdom, This is usually the case. Well, like verse 23 says. Now, what was in question in verse 16? We have food and drink, festival, new moon, or Sabbath. He says these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Greek word for substance is body. And the way it's used here is two things, like shadow and substance, or Uh, type and anti-type or whatever words you're familiar with reading or hearing about. Uh, But the word body would not have escaped the Colossians' attention, already having been used four times in this letter and will be used another three times uh, in phrases like, uh, Jesus is the head of the body of the church and reconciled you by Christ's physical body or the putting off of the body in that context, and circumcision, which passage Daniel says was crazy dense, and I agree. But I mostly want to draw your attention to the idea of type and anti-type, shadow substance. The author of Hebrews, for example, in chapter 8, verse 5, speaks of the priests serving in the holy place, and he says they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. But as it is Christ has obtained a ministry 
that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, if it was sufficient for us, right, then there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So we see here the supremacy of Christ over the shadow, the new covenant over the old. Well, let's think now of what these questions were, food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath. Were these bad things? No. In fact, these were things God commanded for the Israelites to keep. It's not bad. As you heard in Numbers 28 already, uh, we read, a, had a, read for us a sampling of that chapter, and God gave them regulations and guidelines for special days, holy days. Uh, the Sabbath was the weekly rest day. The new moon was the monthly uh, day of offerings. And the festivals were regular annual feasts or holy days. And he also gave regulations on what to eat and what not to eat. You can read about those things in Leviticus 11, for example. Were these good things? Absolutely. But were these things causing a problem for the Colossian church? Yes, at least potentially. And their apostle and pastor Paul is thinking for them, looking to protect them. So how then does a good thing become a bad thing? In the Ten Commandments, we can see uh, Exodus 20, verse 8, is the fourth commandment. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall do no work. And so on. The law is clear. It is from God. So how can there be any question? But do you remember when Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, says... The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees in this passage were giving Jesus a hard time, judging him, that is, like Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, uh, judging him for plucking heads of grain in order to have something to eat. And listen to how Jesus answers the Pharisees' judgment against him. Have you never read what King David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave it to those who were with him. How did David break God's commandment and get commended by Jesus? Was Jesus lawless? Of course not. Both Jesus and David knew that God's laws were not an end in themselves. They were able to put God's law in the proper context as shadows of better things. David was able to eat that bread and break that law in faith, trusting in something about God in this. He knew that this law was made for man. Man was not made for this law. This is a beautiful thing. And Hebrews 4.8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. The New Testament writers are clear about the Sabbath. It was a shadow of Christ. We learn from the Sabbath. We 
as we learn from other laws and regulations. We learn something of Christ and what he has done for us. So you can see how the Pharisees in that passage were using the law. Something good became, they were using it badly. Uh, So the Sabbath taught us to look for rest, and specifically rest from our works, rest from striving after righteousness and our own justification. Well, we can even look at the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. Let's look at Isaiah 1, for example. You you might want to turn there. Uh, One more example, if I may. So in Isaiah 1, um, God is making his case against Judah for breaking the Old Covenant. And verse 11 says... I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Pause. Who has required this of you? Well, he did, didn't he? The problem wasn't with the offerings. Those were good things. Good things that they were using badly. Uh, So, this is the beauty of the law. This isn't the beauty even of the narratives of history. So, now in Isaiah 1.13, we see it explained how they used the good things badly, which is the point right now we're considering. It goes on, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. You see, they had some desire of keeping God's regulations, but they did not do it in faith, as evidenced by their lack of repentance, if you find in that passage. So they used good things badly. And Paul has a very clear sentence in this regard in 1 Timothy 1.8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It's kind of a funny phrase. And he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The law must be used lawfully. You see, if you use the laws and regulations while never repenting of your rebellion to God, you'll only use God's laws You'll only use God's good things badly. Or if you are seeking righteousness through your obedience, you will use God's law unlawfully. Like what has been taught already in Colossians, you must trust that Christ has given you his real obedience and righteousness accounted to you, to me. Only then can you obey his laws out of thankfulness. That is a lawful use of God's law. So good things can be used badly. And point number two, bad things can look good. My family really likes the music of Sarah Groves. She has a song titled, Painting Pictures of Egypt. And part of the song says, I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacks. The future feels so hard and I wanna go back. But the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things I've learned. Those roads were closed off to me while my back was turned. The past is so tangible, I know it by heart. Familiar things 
are never easy to discard. I was dying for some freedom, but now I hesitate to go. I'm caught between the promise and the things I know. Sarah Groves is able to see the richness of Christ in the shadows of the narratives of Israel. In thinking of returning to Egypt, let's look for a moment at Numbers 14, Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. Uh, and it says, the, uh, well, the congregation of Israel here is grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And so Numbers 14, 2, uh, the congregation says, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They were just in Egypt, enslaved, under harsh treatment, beatings, whippings. And the creator of the universe revealed himself and delivered them out of bondage with a mighty hand in the most spectacular ways. And they would go back to what? Not back to good things. Not back to good shadows of better things to come. They're just going back to bad things. Bondage, slavery. They're they're tempted, they're enticed to forsake God and his covenant, to forsake God and go back to Egypt. And to a rebellious heart, enslavement, harsh treatment, even death kind of has a nice ring to it. It's true, sadly. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, God even commands the kings of Israel to never return to Egypt. Oy, that he even needs to say it. But... Oy, that he, that Paul still needs to say it to the Colossians and to me and to you. So you see, the Israelites were enticed to forsake God and return to Egypt, land of bondage. Similarly, in Colossians 2, 18 through 23, that portion, the Colossians uh, are warned against being enticed to reject Christ by turning to perhaps mystics and men with an appearance of wisdom Colossians 2.18 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. After looking at this passage and reading a few commentaries, I'm left with the impression that this is a difficult verse in the Greek to translate, um, which here makes a difference uh, if this falls maybe under point one or point two for us. Uh, If this is asceticism, being the harsh treatment of your own body in an effort to self-atone, essentially, is what that would be. Uh, If it's that, it's not a a good thing used badly. It's just a bad thing. And that would look good, which is our point number two. Uh, If we look at worship of angels as making angels the objects of our worship, well, there's nothing good about that. It's a bad thing that seems good to people. And if going on in detail about visions is a reference to people getting caught up in, good, in uh, some sort of visions, whether demonic or some other form of deception, then this too is 
Not a good thing used badly, it's just a bad thing. Uh, and this translation is certainly possible. Um, and both ways of translating this are both possible and very practical for us. Uh, I, however, lean toward the alternate translation, which, uh, like the NIV, for example, uh, as giving the better understanding. Uh, so anyway, in verse 18, insisting on asceticism, that phrase can literally be translated as delighting in humility. And worship of angels could then be delighting in angelic kind of worship, kind of an elevated, superior kind of worship, maybe a showy kind of worship. Um, if this is what Paul means, then the picture we have here is somebody with kind of this false humility, which is pride, also delighting in their angelic-like worship, which is, again, clearly pride or arrogance, which is the phrase, the word that Paul uses when he says puffed up. That's the word for arrogance in verse 18. So this person is really enjoying himself in his show of religion. And he puts on a show of great humility, the kind that makes everybody feel worse. And he's putting on quite a show of worship that makes everybody else feel inadequate. And what's more, he's going on in detail about visions, which might simply mean the things that he has seen, which also leaves his hearers feeling inferior, inadequate, really ultimately doubting the sufficiency of the power of Christ for them. Can you relate? By the way, Paul isn't simply describing a good conviction of your need for Christ, but instead being led to distrust the finished work of Christ. Do not let such a person disqualify you, distract you, disturb your faith. Here's the NIV on this verse. Uh, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. This is a deceiver. This is somebody who would lead us away from a healthy faith in Christ. Do you know people who make you feel this way? Don't be fooled. Consider, perhaps, the fruit of their message. It may sound good, but does it lead you or lead other people to persevere in their faith and their love of Christ? Hold fast to Christ and the growth that is from God. Christ is our head and our strength is drawn from him. Not in these other ideas which sometimes give us excitement and zeal and passion, but it's an, empty, it's an empty source for strength. Draw your strength from the grace of Christ. Like Hebrews 13, 9 reminds us, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Draw your strength from grace. People will come to you to delude you with plausible arguments, to take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. As Colossians 2.22 says, but don't have it. Hold fast to the head who is Christ. Let's look now at verse 20. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste according to human precepts and teachings. I think there's good evidence here that this is not the good regulations given in the 
Old Testament as shadows, but instead here we have likely man-invented ideas for worship. Verse 22 says, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion or self-willed religion and asceticism or maybe humility uh, and severity to the body. Sometimes the old bad things that are so familiar continue to entice us. In their case, they may have been tempted to look uh, kind of back to these mystical promises of a better life through secret knowledge. This was a very popular religious pursuit in that day. Uh, and in our day, we have the very same things happening, just a different face to them. Uh, so that might have been what they were facing, uh, or maybe people were mixing the new Christian beliefs that they were learning with their old familiar habits of worship. But just like Israel was tempted to forsake God and turn back to Egypt, the Colossians ought not forsake the new covenant with God to return to their old polytheism or pantheism or any other unhealthy-ism. These were vain. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is largely a correction to the church for mixing their old pagan habits from their past into their Christian faith which turns out to be very little hope, very empty. I don't think the Colossians would have been immune to that same allure, and neither are we. Sometimes we're drawn to a self-made, a self-willed religion. Religion from our own will rather than from God's will. Um, So, like verse 23, self-made, maybe... We're drawn here, even after we've been set free from its vanity. Uh, Well, any children with us today? Raise your hand, children. Children, children. Any of you know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is? A summary of the Christian faith in questions and answers. Well, let's see if Question number 51 sounds familiar. It asks, what is forbidden in the second commandment? And maybe we could all read it, uh, read the answer together like we do during the children's messages. The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Well, this is a reference to Exodus 20, verse 4 where it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. We don't get to make up how to worship God. He gives us directions, and we follow him. Reminds us of prayer, would be a good example from the children's message. He teaches us how to pray, and we worship through prayer according to his will. We don't get to make it all up. While he frees us from the vanity of self-made religion, some people would lead you back to bondage, back to false gods, back to bad ideas. And sometimes we don't even need much help because we can be our own worst enemy. Deceivers have a long history, beginning with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He tempted Eve to doubt God's word and to doubt God's character. Thus, he was tearing down the image bearers of God. 
bringing destruction and death. And the narratives of scripture leave a long chronicle of deceivers. But are deceivers in your life like that open attack of Satan with the same motives? Often not. They probably mean well and are kind. If we want to be relevant, we need to recognize both this devilish kind of deceiver because they are with us and around us and we must be vigilant. This is Paul's plea with the church and to us. But we also need to recognize that it might just be grandma or a friend from school, coworker. In fact, I recently visited a dear relative of mine who would have us believe in astrology and reincarnation and praying to the saints and superstitions. These ideas are around us. We love her. Uh, and she, like many of our friends or coworkers, would lead me from my confidence in all that Christ has done for me, for us, and has promised to us would break my confidence if I would go along with her ideas. I have to be rooted, unwavering in the apostolic faith. It's been given to us. Read it. Believe it. I have to say no. And you have to say no when you encounter these ideas from dear people. Often it's a good friend. Often it's somebody who cares for you. But you have to learn to say no. You have to know that the faith handed to us. We have a growth that is from God, a true growth, a blessed growth, which will end well for us. Don't swerve. Be rooted. So let's look at the last point. Don't go back to shadows or Egypt. Good things can be used badly, and bad things can look good, but number three, only Christ gives victory over our rebellion. This passage is largely negative about false teachers, bad ideas, warning us what to avoid. The response for us from this text is to learn to say no. Does this seem easy? No problem? We got this? Maybe. Maybe does it seem impossible to some of you? Maybe. You might ask, how do I learn to say no to false teachers and deceivers? I'm no Bible scholar. If bad ideas sometimes sound right, how am I safe? These are exactly the questions that make the good news the good news. So, Paul wants you to know that part of the Christian faith is holding on to things we don't see, right? Look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? As if you were still alive? This is an invisible reality which we are to believe. And Paul wants us to draw strength from this concept. What the new covenant does for us is executes us with Christ that we may also rise with Christ in the resurrection of the dead. So by faith, we count ourselves dead because he promises that he does that. We count ourselves dead. Like Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. 
I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This death frees us from the bondage to the law, bondage really to our inability to keep the law. Your inability, maybe this will sound familiar, or your failures in the Christian life do not keep you from the table of Christ's communion table, right? This is an encouragement to us. This invisible reality, we believe. He's declared it. You're going to trust him or are you are going to trust what you, what you see? We trust him. We know what's coming. He is true and he is faithful, church. Another word of encouragement regarding these verses, uh, these warnings from Paul. Uh, in John Woodhouse's commentary on Colossians, he talks about two things which may seem in conflict. I thought this was helpful. The warnings to hold fast and the confidence, on the other hand, that by God's power we will hold fast. We will hold fast. So we've got warnings, but we have confidence. Uh, it can seem to be in conflict. He says this. We easily feel tension between, number one, joyful confidence in God's sovereign and free grace towards us for our full and complete salvation in Jesus Christ. And number two, our efforts at godliness. And frankly, when we focus on the latter, our efforts, what confidence can we have? And when we concentrate on the former, what real dangers could there possibly be, he says. So do you maybe focus on one over the other? Don't ever forget that these warnings to us are a means, a tool of God's powerful grace to keep us secure, right? Both ideas fit snugly together as if, as if both were a tight embrace of our shepherd, lean in to the warnings. They're there for you. Take comfort in it. And then you can roll right into confidence, thankfulness. Well, next, Colossians 2.17 gives us assurance that the regulations of the law are not a master over us, but rather a shadow of our better covenant with Christ. So draw strength from this. Be encouraged. And verse 19 reminds us to hold fast to our head, Jesus, drawing nourishment and growth, which is from God. Draw strength from this. Next, verse 20 reminds us that with Christ, we have already been judged and died, so we are now free from condemnation and judgment. Take courage from this, free from condemnation, judgment. You don't see it, but we believe what Jesus has declared, right? And in verse 23, Paul reminds us of the uselessness and inability of the law or any self-made religion to bring us victory over our rebellion. What use is it in striving against the indulgence of the flesh? Sarah Groves said in the song, the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things I've learned. Those roads were closed off to me while my back was turned. Christian, there is no turning back. You now know that you've been made new. And the old hopes and comforts are empty, even dangerous. Jeremiah 
in chapters 31 and 32 give us an amazing sneak peek of the new covenant, the promises, the blessings of the new covenant. And this is rich. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. This is written before the new covenant is made manifest. This is written when they were still living with shadows, looking through them, looking ahead to what blessing they have in in what God will do. And we, we know it's been made manifest in Christ. It continues saying, I will write my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is like conviction. And I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There's freedom. I will give them one heart and one way. That's some unity. That they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. What a blessing. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. There's perseverance for us. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul, says God. How about drawing strength from that? Paul does. In Philippians 2.13, he says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your ability to both want to do good and to do good are given you by God. He has already begun the work of faith and obedience in you, overcoming your evil and rebellious heart and turning us to himself. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. At this church here, we talk a lot about being satisfied in Christ, but he'll not let us be satisfied in him without doing good works. No, they don't save you. But if you've been made new in Christ, the Holy Spirit will stir your heart to help a neighbor because he has saved you. You will treat your coworkers perhaps with more dignity because you are being transformed by the mighty God. Because he is at work in us to both will and to work for his good pleasure. There is freedom in this. He will give us strength. He will help us persevere, giving us what we need. So we even have a shadow for this truth. Paul points out in Galatians 3 that the covenant law to Israel came 430 years after God made covenant promises to Abraham, not before. The law came after the promises and blessing of God. Because God delivers us and makes unchangeable promises, then we trust and obey. 1 Corinthians 12.4 explains that there are a variety of gifts, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So we take strength and comfort knowing that God is at work in us. We do not rest on our own labors. When we do good, we rejoice and we worship. 
that the Holy Spirit is busy in keeping us and helping us. So be vigilant, church. People would delude you. People would take you away, distract you, knock you out of the race, as was said last week. Um, well, seeing as this letter wasn't supposed to end here, I look forward to hearing the next passage in a couple of weeks, since much of the resolution, really, and response for today's passage comes in the following chapters. We spoke a little bit about keeping, obeying and keeping his, his will by his strength, and we'll see how that plays out in the coming passages. So don't go back to shadows or Egypt. Good things can be used badly and bad things can look good, but only Christ gives victory over our rebellion. Pray with me. Oh Lord, use this text to strengthen your church, your children. We stand in need of strength. We stand in need of humility, true humility, not not arrogant humility where we simply uh, enjoy ourselves in it. Let us enjoy you and your strength in our lowliness. Lord, help this church, help each person here. Be vigilant, learn to say no and, uh, to people who would pitch them bad ideas and would take them away from trusting in the completed work of Christ to forgive our sins and to give us righteousness from him. Lord, when the trump sounds and the Lord descends, may it be well with our souls. Keep us vigilant. Lord, be vigilant for us. We pray this in Christ's name, our power. Amen.